Welcome to the Rise of the Challenge podcast. Join today. He's an international best-selling author, entrepreneur, app designer, and trainer. It's Robert Raymond, real pal. How are you doing today, Robert? Uh, you know, I'm already. It's a bright, sunny day. The temperature is getting warmer here in Canada, so I can't complain because I'm still breathing. So I'm doing well, Alex. We're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up. Yeah, you know, um, I'm from my mother, and that may shock people that I'm actually not hatched. I actually was born, <laughs> and I am Canadian, born and bred. And I was born into, um, as the youngest of four children, into a family that financially we've always struggled, never done well. And the kind of things my parents taught me growing up is that when it comes to work, you find a job that's secure, mm-hmm. if there's ever such a thing anymore, and that pays you good money, even if you hate the job, that's what you do to take care of your family. That's how you do it. And I watched my parents, they'd also say, hey, you can do what you love too, if you want. But I watched them move us around from town to town just to stay working to support the family. So it was kind of getting a bit of mixed messages. And I've always been a young entrepreneur, you know, from the age of nine, doing my own kind of businesses like paper outs and stuff at an age 11. And this is going to shock some people, Alex, because I look back and I go, who in their right mind would have hired me to do this? But at age 11, my summer job, I was actually spending five days a week, eight hours a day, babysitting three children. And I was only 11. And I was responsible for the one changing diapers because it was an infant, making lunch and having supper ready for when their parents got home from work. And I was doing that five days a week at the age of 11. I look back now and I'm going, yep, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) And um, so always been an entrepreneur. And when I started working young, I did what I was taught. I started working hard, started staying loyal. And here I am, I'm now a newlywed, it's 20, I'm 21 years of age, and I'm being laid off from my third job. And my mind's going, something's going on here. Is it just me? I started getting complex because I'm like, every real job I've had, all of a sudden they shut down and I get laid off because they're either turning the car wash into a mini mall or um, I, they shut down a fiberglass shop I was working for, or I was working for this big factory and they shut the whole factory down. And I'd got hired on when they opened two years earlier. So I started getting complex. It's like, if someone hires me, does that mean they're going out of business? (laughs) (laughs) And at the time when I was laid off from that third job where I live in Alberta, our economy was really in a downward spiral spiral because oil prices were low and stuff like that. And I couldn't find another real job. So I decided to do something until I found that job to support my family. And I started delivering pizzas for Domino's Pizza. And very quickly, I actually, because of my work ethic, started making more money delivering pizzas than I'd actually been making in my real job. Started having fun. Um, I also, because of my work ethic, I got offered a chance to become a manager of a store. I did. My wife became my assistant manager. And what did we do? We started working hard, open to close seven days a week, because that's what we both know. And my wife, she's the youngest of five children. And so we both know, you know what it is to have no money tight. And so we started working hard to see if we could create a better life. And we were doing that for a year and a half when we got the bad news. My franchisee said, look, I'm getting out of Domino's Pizza. I'm selling this two stores that I own. And the reason it was bad news for us is we'd watched enough stores in the city around us get sold. We knew that the first people laid off were the managers because the new owners came in and wanted to run the store with their own team. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I now panicked because it's like, not only am I going to lose my job, my wife is, that's our entire income. 
So my solution, hey, why don't we, and I'm saying to my wife, why don't we go and talk to the other franchisees, find out who needs managers quickly, even before we wrap up here. And my wife let me kind of vent and stress and get that out. And then she looks at me, she goes, um, here's a question. We're qualified to be franchisees. Why don't we just buy this store we're working in? And I looked at her, I'm like, because we don't have any money. That's why we don't buy this store. And you know, being the youngest of five children, my wife, she was taught you find a way. So we started learning, how do you buy a business if you don't have any money? And we made a lot of mistakes. And if there's something that your audience takes away from this kind of conversation you and I are having is be willing to make mistakes because some of your greatest lessons will come from what did not work. Yep. And even if it, you know, at the time you don't understand it, even if the time it feels like painful, even if at the time it feels like the end of the world, look for a lesson in it and look for how you can adjust from going through that. Because on the other side, what I now understand, some of the greatest gifts we have to give the world is from what did not work. And that hence rising to the challenge, right? I love, I've been looking forward to this interview because I love the whole concept of what you're teaching people is that we're going to get kicked. We're going to get beaten down. But do you stay down or do you rise to the challenge? And I love that. And so we rose to the challenge. It took us about four or five months of making a lot of mistakes, paying people money for things they said they'd deliver and they wouldn't. When we finally had the confidence to go to our own bank, we now knew what to say and what not to say. And Alex, we didn't get the financing for our store. We actually got 100% financing for both the stores my franchisee had for sale. Yeah, and we we became franchisees and it was like, oh, we're <laughs> successful. But here's the reality. We knew how to run a Domino's Pizza store. But at the age of 23, we didn't know how to run a business. Mm-hmm. We'd never been taught that. And there's a to- total world of difference between running a store as a manager and running a business. And we thought, you know, we'll figure it out as we go. And it took us two years of struggle. Our, our whole philosophy in business was, if there's money in the bank, we're doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> we can't afford an accountant. We'll do it on our own. Uh, we're working seven days a week, open to close. When did we think we were going to be able to do that? Two years in, we're getting a knock from the government saying, hello, you're in business. There's something called financials that you need to be submitting. And we had to break down and get an accountant, and we got caught up. And when we got caught up, the question they asked us, they said, how did you two survive? There's no way you should have been able to survive these last two years running these stores. But we didn't know what we didn't know. And we didn't know that we weren't doing well. We just knew we were going to make it work. And once we started getting the better understanding, we started doing pretty good. And we started making pretty good money. But remember, we both come from poor families. So as we made money, what did you think we wanted to do? (laughs) We started doing something, and Alex, this may shock you because you probably have never met anybody who's ever done this. We started spending more money than we were earning. No. I know that's shocking. Right? <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. It happened. <laughs> we were trying to keep up with the Joneses, and all of a sudden, eight years into being franchisees, we're over $150,000 in personal debt going down quickly and stressed out. And I don't know if you've ever experienced financial stress, but to me, that was the worst stress I could ever go through. And that's when we were introduced to personal development. And we, um, out of necessity, we went to a three-day training that changed our life because first it taught us why we were in debt. Second, and more importantly, it ter- taught us to 
take ownership of that debt. We were, I was really good at blaming others. You lost my investment because of you, I did this and now look at what's happened. So when we took ownership, then we are now open to seeing the actions we had to take if we wanted to get out of debt. And doing that, we decided we needed to and chose to tr turn our lives around and putting into practice what we'd learned in that three days, we ended up going from being over $150,000 in debt to actually retired completely financially free nine months later at the age of 32. And that's what our mind went. It went, wow, if this information gave us that result, what would more information do? And I dove into, my wife and I dove into being active students. I'm a big believer. And again, a message for your listeners. Don't just learn from one person. Don't just learn one perspective. Learn from as many people as you can. And as we were doing that over the next couple of years, I found my passion. My passion was to teach. And I realized if I could even help one person, not this big grandiose, you know, I'm going to help everybody. If I could help one person do what my wife and I had been able to do, go from financial stress to financial success, it'd make it all worthwhile. And for the last 20 years, I've been blessed to travel around the world several times, personally train over half a million students in live trainings, anywhere from 100 at a time to 6,000 at a time for three to five days at a time. I'm on stage for up to 12 hours a day, living what I love. And that's kind of led me to where I am today. Going back to when you were younger, did you ever feel worried that you may not have had the life to be a kid and kind of enjoy that? Or do you think that working at a young age helped you develop to who you are today? Uh, you know, my parents were always about be kids, be kids. And, um, but they also, we, they encouraged us to, you know, not only have friends and get into activities, but at a young age, I ended up joining something in Canada we called Sea Cadets. It's for kids that are 13 to 19. And it basically think of it as a younger version of the Navy where we, we had army cadets, air cadets, I was in sea cadets and I learned about um, leadership. I learned about discipline. I learned, you know, and we would meet once a week, but then in summers, we'd spend summer at summer camp. So I definitely had a chance to be a kid, loved it. Hey, that's where I met my wife. We met when we were 13. We started dating when we were 16. We got married when we were 19. And we are, this year we celebrate our 33rd wedding anniversary. Now, Alex, don't do the um, math on how old. <laughs> do you feel that everything was going quickly? Because you talked about you started dating your wife at 16, married at 19. And usually uh, you hear stories all the time about people getting married at that young age. Are they really ready for that next step in their life? Uh, you know, that's a great question. And I, I would, looking back, Probably not, but that was our times back then. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in my wife's family, being the youngest of six, um, youngest of five kids, her mother being a single mother raising these five kids for their 16th birthday, their present from their mom was a set of luggage because it's time to move out. And so, yeah, and, and that was the time back then. Her mom actually had her first daughter when she was 14. Wow. So, you know, it's hard to answer for today's day and age and maybe younger generation. For then, it's what, it was, it's what worked. And my wife and I have a great marriage, but we, one of our um, kind of commitments to each other is we don't quit. So we have knocked down, drag out battles, but we don't quit. And that's where we have stayed together. And, and it's just a personal belief, but I, you know, some relationships are not meant to be. Let me be clear on that. 
but I believe a lot of the relationships that break up is people give up too easily mm -hmm. and they're not willing to put the work in to make them. And I don't, uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but <laughs> no, it does. It was a different world. I like that you mentioned about not quitting and that's kind of been a lifestyle or a motto that I've been living by where I don't give up. If I'm, if I'm challenging myself to go through a task or a challenge that's in front of me, I enjoy yeah. it because when I get to the other side, it's kind of like, wow, I learned a lot about myself, maybe yes. found something that I didn't think I could, but I kind of want to put those doubters behind me because they're, they want to see me fail, but I'm not going to let them see me give up. And, and that's fail. it. And that totally tells me and, and makes sense of why you call your podcast Rise to the Challenge. And, and that's it. You know, I nowadays my passions are as I love doing one-on-one -on -one coaching, but more importantly, one-on-one -on -one mentoring with um, people who are trainers. Mm -hmm. And one of my core rules with them, because if someone's going to spend a lot of money and spend a, a year being mentored by me, my number one rule is you don't quit because I'm going to push you. You're not always going to be happy. You're going to be pissed off at me at times, but don't quit because if you stay in the game, if you rise to the challenge, what you come out the other end at, um, doing, who you will be, the people you'll be able to impact, you'll be sharing your gift with people that have been waiting for you to show up. Yep. And I get that commitment right off the bat. As you were growing up, did you have any inspirations or someone that you looked up to? Yeah, um, some of my officers and cadets. You know, my parents, for sure, they modeled what a great relationship was. Um, and my the officers in my cadet organization, they showed me what it was to be a true leader, a heart-centered leader. Um, so a lot of people, uh, I had a lot of mentors in my younger age. Um, and, you know, they taught me commitment and how to make the tough choices. You know, I remember when in grade six, I was so excited about being in a school play because I wanted to do some acting and all of a sudden, and because I was fully committed to cadets that we'd meet once a week and stuff like that. All of a sudden it turned out that our, the play was coming up on a weekend where I had a commitment with the cadets and I had to, I, I hated it. I struggled with it, but you know, my, one of my um, officers said, so where was your first commitment? And I said, well, it was to the cadets. He said, then that's what you have to go by. And so I went to my teacher that was uh, putting on the play and I said, look, unfortunately, I can't carry through on the rest of this commitment. It's now I understand what I call a formal decommitment. But back then at six, um, grade six, yeah. I didn't know. And I just, and my teacher was pissed at me. They, you know, this is, blah, blah, blah. and we weren't even far into the production. And I just said, you know, I made a commitment to them first. I've got to honor that. And so that was a big lesson for me at that age. With commitment, is that something that you take nowadays where if you're in a situation like that, you kind of look back at your time with the cadets or what your officer said, what's your first commitment? You kind of have that same mindset nowadays. Without a doubt. And especially when I teach and when I coach and when I mentor, because people go, well, Robert, I can't do this because I have a prior commitment. And I'm like, your prior commitments come first. If you've made a commitment, and that's another thing I've noticed that um, people don't do, they they walk away from a commitment too easily. Mm -hmm. You know, hey, let's get into business. And then all of a sudden the business is going sideways and they're gone. And you're like, what happened to your commitment? Uh, well, uh, uh, things changed. Well, then we need to talk about it when there needs to be a formal decommitment. So I'm very, very big. It's carried through all my life.
Do you have a memory from your time at the cadets that kind of still comes to you? Like it was a favorite moment from that experience. <laughs> uh, yes. The year was 1987. And again, dating myself, <laughs> um, I was a staff cadet, which means I was spending eight weeks at the summer camp. And I now had a division of cadets that I was leading. And um, my girlfriend was um, a staff cadet as well. She had a division of cadets and we went on a weekend leave together. And on the weekend leave, I proposed. And that was, you know, um, it was just that one of those times in your life where the whole new possibilities opened up. Back then we didn't have cell phones. So we got back to the base. We went to the pay phones in the annex. We pick it up. We phone our parents excitedly saying, guess what? We got engaged this weekend. <laughs> and we phoned her mom and we're like, guess what? And her mom goes, what? She goes, Robert and I got engaged this weekend. And her mom goes, guess what? She goes, what? Jim and I got married this weekend. Um, <laughs> her, yeah, the, the, the um, kind of stepfather that was in my wife's uh, life, he had wanted to marry her mom for years that they'd been together. But she had said, until all my children are at the age where they can take care of themselves and or moving out, I won't let you marry me. And at 17, my wife, we knew already going back home, we were going to be moving in together for even for my wife's grade 12 year, because she'd been given the luggage. <laughs> she stayed <laughs> a year longer than she was supposed to. And so we knew we were going to move in together. And so she finally let her husband um, marry her. And so it was like the weekend we got engaged, this is the weekend they got married. <laughs> so that's a, that's a great memory from that time. Sometimes we're asked, what's that dream job that we were wanting? If your direction went in a different path, what would that dream job been for you? Something that would give me security, a pension, and 40 years of being in an office. And what would you be I doing tried, in the office? I, I tried to sound excited about that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could tell with the facial expression. If someone's listening to this, you just have to go to the video and see his expression oh my saying goodness. that. <laughs> well, the, the third company I'd looked for or worked for that laid me off. It was a big company that had, I, I started off when they opened it at the age of uh, 18. They had opened a door factory and um, we were making cedar doors. And I started in the factory and because they had factories all over North America, my goal was for the next 40 years, I'm going to work for this company and I'm, I'm going to advance through the ranks. I want to become my own general manager of a, my own factory. And so in the time I'd worked for them, because I was willing to do whatever it takes to grow myself, I went to night school, um, started learning things like accounting and that. So I got promoted from in the factory to all of a sudden working in the shipping receiving department to then being promoted into the inside sales. And here I am at the age of 21, lower management already. And I thought I had it all mapped out. And um, so that's why it was even more shocking when the general manager called me in and said, oh, by the way, we're shutting the factory down. You were laid off as of last Friday, because now that I was lower management, they could lay me off instantly. Whereas all the workers in the factory got another two to three weeks of work as they wrapped down, you know, wound it down. And so I would have seen myself being my own general manager of a factory, miserable, but comfortable because I would be making a secure income. I'd have a pension. I'd be hating waking up in the morning, but I'd be comfortable, if that makes sense. You'd mentioned earlier about people sometimes will do a job for maybe financial, but they may hate the job. If someone that's yeah. listening to this interview and going through something like that, what would you tell them to kind of 
focus on what they're doing and kind of maybe look at different outlooks from that job, even though they don't like being there. Yeah. You know, I live by a rule that my mother taught me and my father taught me. They said, no matter what's going on in your life, the moment you walk through the door of your job, you leave all that crap at the door and you be there and give a hundred percent. And that's what I've always done. And so for people who are in jobs that they don't like, if you're sitting there and you're complaining, complaining in the job, you're just going to attract more of that to you. You're going to get more miserable. So give a hundred percent and be there. Now a mentor taught me, cause I'm big on big believer. You have to have mentors, have to have coaches in your life. And one of my mentors, I love what he said. And this is Alex going back to the days of when there was regular nine to five jobs. I know that's not real anymore, but <laughs> I want to use this as an analogy. He says, you make, you earn a living from nine to five. Mm-hmm. So whatever your nine to five job is, that's how you're earning a living. Be there hundred percent during that time. He said, but you create your life from five to nine. So those next three or four hours after you go home from work, what are you doing to really create the life you want? Yep. And so my recommendation for people is if you don't like doing what you're doing, find what your passion is. And then part-time find a way to make money doing what you enjoy. I'll never tell someone to do an all or nothing. Like I'm going to quit this job and dive into my passion and find a way to make money at it because then that's, you're not taking care of your family. You're not going to stick with it. You're going to get frustrated. And then you're going to be going, Oh, and now I don't have a job either. So start part-time, start living your passion, start making money part-time. And then once you are making enough money that it's replacing your full-time job, then you switch, you let go of the job, you decommit from the job. Because now you know you're supporting your family, you're taking care of things, and you're living your passion all at the same time. I loved when you mentioned, because I think a lot of people nowadays, where when you walk in through those doors before, the drama needs to stay outside the office. Because once you start bringing that in, your mental mindset changes. You're not focused on the task at hand. And even it's the reverse way also. If there's drama in the office... And then you leave for the end of the day, you want to leave it there because you want to go home and enjoy. And I've always found that this, this show has been that kind of side hustle or that fun project that I get to do, but it's helped me spark new ideas, new skills that I can take into the job that I have and enjoy it even more. And so that's why I think everyone should find something that they're passionate about because if they're struggling with the job that they're at, maybe something that they do outside of work will spark something new that they can bring into the workforce and that maybe they'll enjoy it and have a new outlook on it. Yeah. And I can imagine doing your podcast, you've met some pretty interesting people, right? And, yep. and then you, and then you met me. I do. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so any little insight that you get that that's right. You're increasing what's called your intellectual property, yep. your mindset. And uh, a, a former mentor of mine, who's now a friend. And even like in two weeks, I'll be sharing the stage with him on a virtual summit a gentleman by the name of Jim Britt. When I started reading his books and I loved what he said, he said, look, you know, at the young age, I was working in a car wash. And everybody else, all the other pump jockeys, and this is when you'd still wash the windows and stuff like that, because uh, he's old like me, actually older, but so he's <laughs> the old man. Um, he said, you know, all the other jockeys would just complain and complain and complain, because why am I here? I hate this job. He said, I'd be there and I'd be like, how are you today? Let me take care of those windows for you. You know, and he said, I would just give it 100%. He said, one day a person drove up and I'm filling their tank. And he said, you know, and it's someone I recognize, they've been there a while. He says, 
I want to offer you a job. And I'm like, pardon me? He goes, I'm the supervisor up at the factory and this town was run by the factory. And you had to know someone who knew someone who knew someone to get a job there. He said, you're the youngest person I would hire. He said, but every time I'm here, you have a commitment to what you're doing and you're not bringing drama into things. He said, I want to offer you a job there. And he ended up offering him a job and all the other gas jars go, why not us? And it's like, well, you're complaining little whining little bitches. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) and, and, and it's, you know, that's the, the attitude you've got to have is I look at it, the opportunities I've achieved in my life because the people I've attracted, because when I'm doing something, I'm there a hundred percent doing it. Yep. I'm not whining, complaining. I wish I was here. I'm like, I'm here to do a job. Let's do it as efficiently, as best as I can, giving up my everything. And that opens up doors. That opens up many opportunities right there. You talked about earlier about financial struggles. Did you, at any point in time, did you ever think about changing a career to kind of offset that financial struggle? Because for getting into Domino's franchises, you know, maybe it wasn't maybe the right path, but sometimes people need a total switch in a different direction. Oh, wow. You had to ask that, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) We asked the tough questions here. Uh, Well, and you know, um, in all the podcast interviews I've done, that's not, that's one that's never been asked. And, but where, what the reason I was laughing while you're asking is because I was just talking to a business partner of mine about this the other day, it came up when I, my wife and I were struggling in our Domino's pizza. My thought to the answer was, I'm going to go and find a job to earn an hourly income to help support what we're not making in the store. And I, I got frustrated because I'd go around. I, I thought I had a great resume. I'd dress up. I'd, you know, go to interviews. And every single one, they, when they said no, I'd ask, well, why? Just so I can learn. And they said, because you're a business owner and we don't think you'd be committed. The first thing that goes wrong in your business, you're going to leave to go there to take care of that. We need people who would be committed to the job. And of course, I'm like, oh, of course I'd be committed. I know if you're paying me $9 an hour, I'm going to be here. Because for me, especially at the time, that $9 an hour, I thought was going to make all the difference in the world because of mm-hmm. how we were drowning. So yeah, I, I thought many times of different career um, journeys I could have gone on. And it was really at the end of my Domino's Pizza career. And when, but since I've turned, tapped into my passion for the last 20 years, no. Because there's different variations. Mm-hmm. And even when I overtrained, and, and I want to be clear with your audience too, when you find your passion, there is such a thing as overliving your passion. When and I started training and I did my first training on my own in 2004, I had 1,200 students for a three day weekend. And all of a sudden the world exploded open and I started training and living my passion full on. But in the next four and a half years from that point, I did over 200 multi-day trainings, mainly in North America and just starting to go into Asia. And I was only at home on average two days a month. I was overliving it and I was getting burnt out. And it came to a point in 2008, September 2008, where it's like, I have to take a break. I need to take one year off. Now, thank goodness, because we had taken care of money, you know, and how many of your listeners would love to be able to go, I'm going to take a year off and not have to worry financially about it. Yeah, We decided to take a year off and I was so burnt out. And because I hadn't been taking care of my body, Alex, I actually herniated a disc and went through two back surgeries. On stage, I wasn't taking care of myself. 
And all of a sudden that one year turned into three and a half years where I didn't work and I got comfortable because now, you know, you're, there's a saying I love and it's so true. Your environment is stronger than your willpower. All of a sudden I'm back in the environment and old negative non-supportive habits started coming back in. And I could have started doing stuff again, but I was comfortable. And, but I'm going through my rehabilitation. My back's still sore. I can't really do this. I can't. And I became that victim mode. Mm -hmm. And have you ever noticed that the universe or God, whatever higher power belief you go by, sends you messages all the time and lessons? Have you ever noticed that? Yep. And Alex, what happens if you don't listen to that challenge? Does it go away? Nope. It, it comes back a little more intense, right? Yep. And that's what happened for me is in, and it was August 10th of 2010. I'm two years into my hiatus and I've been getting these messages. Robert, you said you're taking a year off. Start teaching again. Start sharing your gift again. And I ignore it. So it'd come a little more intense. And on that day in August 10th, I, where I lived at the time in Calgary, Alberta, across the street and up the street, my mother and father-in-law, that's where they lived. And that morning, beautiful sunny day, they called me up and they said, we're having a problem with our TV. Can you come up and give us help? And I'm like, Absolutely. I walk out of the house, I cross this um, street onto the sidewalk, walk up, help them out. Across from my house, there was a, is a park, it was a park, and there's about 30 kids playing with their parents and all that in the park. So I walk up, I help them out, I'm coming back, and I'm about to cross the street from the sidewalk to my driveway when a couple comes walking out of a, a, um, a neighborhood walkway, and they've got a big dog, a bull mastiff, and I love animals. If you saw the menagerie of my animals in the house, <laughs> I love animals. And I, so I stopped and I'm on the sidewalk there in front of my driveway. And I said, is she friendly? And they said, no, she's actually, she's not. We just rescued her. We're now starting to rehabilitate her. So they stayed where they were. I stayed where I was. And we were just talking for a while. And eventually I knelt down and they slowly brought her towards me. I let her smell my hand and I petted her head and I petted her neck. And there was no issue until I went to stand up. And also in the moment I stood up and I don't know why, but she lunged for my throat. And because oh. of the standing motion, my chin had just naturally dropped. So instead of getting my throat, she got my chin and she latched on hard and began to try and drag me to the ground. I'm instantly in shock. And I knew that if she got me to the ground, I'm dead. So I stood up, she's now hanging off my chin and the guy walking her actually had to physically pry her jaws off of me. And now him and his wife is taking both of them to hold her because she's trying to lunge back at me. There's blood all over the place. And I'm the only thought in my head is there's 30, about 30 kids in that playground. I said, look, I live right there. Just get her out of here. And they start dragging her up the street. And I start walking up to my house and blood dripping along. And I'm coming up to the door. And all of a sudden in my mind, it goes, if I get blood in the house, my wife's going to kill me. You know, it's crazy what goes through your mind when you're in shock. And I opened the door and I thought I called for my wife calmly. She comes running. She sees the blood. She's like, what happened? I said, a dog attacked me. She got a towel to my chin. Now I'm safe because I'm out of that fight or flight mode. And all of a sudden I start to get lightheaded and I'm about to pass out. And my wife knew if I dropped, there's no way she was going to get me to the vehicle and to the, to the hospital. So she went into what we call her warrior mode. She sees me kind of starting to do this wavering and she looks at me and she goes, don't you faint, get to that car. And I'm like, yes, dear. <laughs> <laughs> and if you know anything about dog bites or your audience does, if there's a puncture from a dog bite, they don't want to close it up. They want to clean it up, but leave it open so any bacteria floods out, the blood will bring any out. So under my goatee, there's three puncture wounds. 
And so they just cleaned them up and left those. But here on my chin, the dog had ripped through my chin. And so it actually took nine stitches to um, close that up. Now, in that moment, I actually had a choice to make. I could have looked at the situation and went, why the did that happen to me? Or I could look and say, why did that happen to me? Because I'm a big believer that everything happens for a reason. Yep. And, and people have heard that saying, and I can tell you you've heard it, but you, did you know that that's not the complete saying? That's only I did not know that. Yeah. See, it's everything happens for a reason, and that reason is there to serve me. And I know, especially when you're going through crap, you're like, what do you mean that is there to serve me? And so when I looked at it from the perspective of curiosity, because that thought went through my head, okay, everything happens for a reason, that reason is there to serve me, so why did this happen? And I realized I had committed to come back out of my hiatus and start giving my gift again after a year, and here I was already two years in. And I realized that one inch further, the dog would have got my jugular. Mm -hmm. And me and my gift would have been gone like that. And in that moment, I made the decision I had to train. I didn't have to train for financial benefit. I had to train because it was my gift to the world and it could be gone. And it still took me a year and a half to fully come out of retirement because I I also knew I wasn't going to put my body through what I did before. I wasn't going to overlive that passion. I was going to find a little bit more balance. And so when I came out of retirement in 2012, that's exactly what I did. And I've been living my gift, you know, before COVID, <laughs> flying yeah. on average 200,000 miles a year around the world, getting to impact lives. And now I do it through, um, you know, through virtual and, you know, uh, you know, kind of another side part of it. And, and I'll, I'll let you say words first, and then I can kind of continue the journey. <laughs> I, I can just keep talking, Alex. It happens. <laughs> Do you feel when you were taking that hiatus, and it, it started out being a year, and then it continued on, that during this time where everything's virtual, do you think that might have been a strategy that you could have played off of and kind of still been a part of it, still been training, but in a virtual setting? You know, back then virtual just wouldn't have worked because back then you didn't have zooms. You maybe had something called Skype starting back then, yep. but it wasn't what it is today. So no, I don't think that it would have worked. Um, I did cause back then it was a lot of, Hey, phone calls. Can yep. you do a phone conference and, and a teleseminar? I, I participated in a couple drove me nuts. And so <laughs> yeah, no, because it's just not the same energy, at least even with a zoom. You know, I have a full super Zoom room on the other side of this wall from my office where I stand. I can see up to three, 400 students. I'm very interactive with them because I can see them. Yep. Different than saying, I know you're on the other side of that phone. I know you're probably multitasking while I'm teaching you. Put the phone back up to your ear, put everything else down and pay attention. It's just not the same. No. <laughs> I've done those phone teleconference and it's so easy to just, hit the mute button or mute yourself and just walk away from the phone and not even really pay attention. And I feel even with that in-person interaction, I feel is a lot better because you're there. You can kind of soak that information into them and through zoom and stuff, it's helped during this time, but it's still like we're on this call. I could be looking at a different screen and still paying attention to you, but that would be unfair to the person that's speaking. So I totally agree. In-person interaction. And see, much and you better. just hit 
you just hit a very critical part is about truly being present with someone. Yep. How many times are you with someone where your mind's somewhere else? You're thinking about something else. But if you practice being truly present, and so I design my trainings where people have no choice but to be present. See, because I'm always having them do tasks. We're going into breakout rooms. We're doing all these things because I've adjusted. And, and this is um, two very powerful words for your audience, especially in today's day and age with the way technology is changing. When you find yourself struggling, when you find yourself at the cro crossroads of, I don't know what to do, then you ask yourself two words, what's next? Yep. And you don't have to have the perfect answer, just what's next and then get started. What's next, get started and commit because in two more words that I'm going to teach your audience is all in. You've got to be willing to go all in. And the example of that, uh, how appropriate where we are right now is to two years ago yesterday that COVID from, and I don't know when this is being released, but from our filming on March 11th is when the world announced that there was a worldwide pandemic. And on March 10th, I was flying home from India. I had just finished a three-day training. And all of a sudden, March 11th, my world changed. I went from flying 200,000 miles a year down to zero. And the first couple of weeks, because I got put into isolation, I was just in another country. The world's in terror, not sure what's going on. And my wife and I, we did go into victim role. And we, our minds physically made us sick for two weeks of all the uncertainty. But when we started getting through that and realizing what we were doing to ourselves, this is how powerful your mind is. We asked those questions of what's next. And three years earlier, we had bought this beautiful acreage I'm blessed to live on with the intention that eventually five, six, seven years down the road, we'd build our own training center on it mm -hmm. so that instead of me having to fly so much, I could have students come here for the physical experience, masterminding, small little groups. I can put someone on stage and tweak them. I love training trainers. And so we said, what's next? And all of a sudden, as we started doing that, all the what if scenarios came in. But what if we don't know how long this is going to last? What if we don't get any revenue? Because all of a sudden, hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue, Alex, were gone in an instant, in an yep. instant for all my live events. So that's when we instituted the all in. And here's where people make biggest mistakes is they have a plan B. You know, I'm going to go in this direction, but if it doesn't work out, then I've got plan B so I can go on that. And then they wonder why they're always falling back on plan B because your mind is going to look, and this is the work I do around the world as I work with the mind, the mindset, how it works for you, how it works against you. Your mind is going to look for a way to keep you the same. It doesn't want you to change. So it's going to look and focus on that plan B because you've given it a plan B. So when you say all in, there is no other choice. So my wife and I said, okay, we're all in. And what was supposed to be a six month project took a year and a half from conception to getting it planned, to getting it built, to delay, 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 finally complete. But today I'm sitting in my office. I've got a 1500 square foot training center on the other side of the wall. On the other side of the wall of that is a new 900 square foot prep area. So I've added a 2400 square foot training center onto the back of my house that all of a sudden ready for students, but then our province went into another lockdown. So I could have went, oh crap, this is bull. What's going on? Or I could say, okay, what's next? Hmm. Mm -hmm. I can turn it into a super Zoom room because if we're going to keep doing Zooms, we might as well do it in a great way. And I can rent it out to other people who are in the same position I'm in because I can bring one or two people in and they don't have the capability to do what I've done. So now we rent out the super Zoom room so that they can impact their audiences. And so I've monetized it because we went all in. So those are things I'd recommend to your audience.
look at all the events, stages that you've performed or countries you visit. What's been your favorite? <laughs> there is no answer to that because everyone has, you know, first time I went to Singapore was my first time outside of North America. And I went, wow, look <laughs> how cheap things are. This is amazing. And then I, my next trip, I went to Kuala Lumpur. Wow, look how amazing it is. Look how cheap things are. Look at the people. And so every country I go to, it's been a, a kind of a practice I put in place. I look for what's beautiful in the place because my mind naturally would look for what's different, what's wrong, what's ugly or what's, you know, like uh, first time in India. When I get to a country, I love to just go for a walk and get lost. Before people know who I am, I just want to go on public transport and just in, experience the area, right? And so I get to India and it was in Mumbai and it was right after they had had major floods. Like we're talking six foot high water in the streets, something that would have shut anywhere here in North America down for months yep. or even a year. Here it was a couple months later, they're up and running. I thought my event, when the flooding happened, I'm like, oh, I won't be going to India. They're going to cancel my event because, you know, I was comparing it to North America. And all of a sudden they're going, okay, your flights are booked. We're ready going. I'm like, what about the flooding? What about the flooding? (laughs) (laughs) And that was it. They're like, what about the flooding? We get through it like we always do. So I land there and I'm walking and I'm all of a sudden like, wow, look how dirty it is. I start comparing Canada to India. And And I'm noticing this. And because I do a lot of work on myself and introspection, it only took me a few minutes to go, whoa, 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 what are you doing? And I took those glasses and I physically do the, the action. I didn't have glasses on, but I took off the glasses I was looking through and I metaphorically put on glasses to see the beauty around me. And the moment I changed my perspective, all of a sudden I started noticing that this country, sure, it may be dirtier than I'm used to, but when I started looking at people and their faces, I saw more happy people that have, by my standards, nothing. Mm-hmm. I saw more happy people than I see where I live in Canada with people who have basically everything. And all of a sudden, when I started noticing the beauty, my walk just it went to a whole new level. I'm just like, wow, look at, look at how they're utilizing that. Look at how they're doing that. Look at even though the mud's still from the, um, the flood, they've created an opening to their shop until they can fully get it cleaned up and they're back in business. This is amazing. And so I look for the beauty in every country I go to. So I have no favorite. No, I like that outlook that you see the positives in each area and kind of just live in the experience of it. And you kind of are willing to learn even more. And that's definitely something I hope to do in the future is where to travel and just enjoy and see the world differently. And it's always on friends and I, we have bucket list going and we're always going to thinking about these countries that we want to visit. But like you said, enjoy, like, don't think about it how, like, here in America, how we live. Every country is different, but they have so much uniqueness that you just need to enjoy and kind of live in that world for the amount of days that you're there. And it takes practice. And so here's a recommendation, especially in the times we're in. Have you ever thought of being a tourist in your own town? How many amazing things are right around you that you just don't see because, but other people come to, um, to St. Louis and they go to the arches. They come to St. Louis and they go, yep. there's a six flags here. They come to St. Louis and they go, uh, you, St. Louis with, when my wife and I went to St. Louis, it was the first time we got to experience a major league baseball game. And I still wear 
29 carpenter jersey because again this is from a few years ago and and we we were like we're in st louis we've always wanted to go to a major league baseball game we're right we're blocks away from the stadium why don't we go and what blew us away is when we bought the tickets and that and not kind of sure all of a sudden um someone asked so there was someone in a, a i found out later a volunteer that you know seniors that come to the games to help people that are new to baseball or whatever and they said, have you ever been to a baseball game before? And we're like, no, it's our first time. The experience they gave us of just sharing with us what to watch for, the history, and, and that game was so amazing. It's like, okay, we're coming back tomorrow. And they're like, we'll be here. And, you know, it's so nice to meet you. Just the energy of the people there in St. Louis blew us away. So have you been a tourist in your own town? Get the practice. If you want to travel around the world, practice being that tourist in your local area first so you get the habit so you don't walk or i mean travel to another country and all of a sudden start looking for oh well this is i don't like this or i don't like that you're now in the practice of going what's unique about this yep what could i learn from that and it'll open your eyes up it's amazing alex when you do that well we did have the tagline for our baseball team baseball heaven because of the fan base so you came to the right the oh, right ballpark goodness. yeah there's no doubt in my mind no doubt love that experience and like I said, it was even just the other day, I was wearing my number 29 Carpenter jersey. <laughs> <laughs> For someone that's looking at your book as an international bestselling author, what's the big mission that you hope that they capture after they read your book? That they don't just read it. I, I, I didn't write the book for them to read and put on the shelf and make it shelf help. That's mm. not why I wrote it. Um, you know, in my book, I cover six clues of how to um, have an even more amazing life. And um, when you take these steps, because I know people are creatures of habit, mm-hmm. I, I know that most people just read it and they put it away. Or what statistics shows, if you buy a book and don't start reading it within 48 hours of getting it, you chances are you never will because we're creatures of habit. So I wanted to write it in a different way. And I wrote it, I could have put all the science behind these steps. I could have made it a thousand page book quantum physics because you know when i work with mindset and people go oh this is kind of woo woo and all that you can back it all up with science quantum physics everything and i could have done all that research but i knew people if i did that they read about five pages and go yeah whatever and put it aside so on purpose i made it very very simple and broke it down into six easy simple steps and i'm going to tell the audience do not if you ever choose to read my book do not let the simplicity fool you See, success is not easy. It takes work, mm-hmm. but it is simple. If you find someone who's done what you um, want to accomplish and you find out how they did it and then you follow those steps, there's a, there's a blueprint, there's clues right there, but most people try to reinvent and that's why they struggle. So I made the book very, very simple, but knowing also mindset, I made it a workbook because step number three of that book is action from traveling all around the world. The number one biggest difference between people who have success and people who don't successful people take consistent action. Mm-hmm. Even if they fail, they take action. So I wrote it, um, Alex as a workbook. So all the way through, there's actually action steps and being the crazy person I am, I'll even say in some of the chapters, Hey, did you do the last action? If not <laughs> stop reading right now, go back, do the action and then continue reading because I know people don't. And so that's how I wrote the book. And, and, if, and I will make a promise to your audience. If they read the book and do the actions, 
no matter what level their life is at, they'll go to another level. I guarantee that. You talked earlier about having a burnt out period of time. How has that been for you now? Have you been able to manage personal and professional life and be able to manage both and not have those burnout feelings again? Yeah, absolutely. So prior to um, the, taking the hiatus, I was doing 40 to 50 full-on trainings, multi-day trainings a year. And like I said, only on average two days a month at home. The only reason it worked even for as long as it did is my wife traveled with me almost to all the events. She was running the logistics. And so um, when I knew I wanted to come out of retirement, I said, okay, overliving passion, bad. Not living passion at all, bad. <laughs> I want to have balance. But the problem is that people think balance is everything's perfect and it's like, <laughs> this is, but to me, that's not what I realized. Everything's always changing in your life. So to me, balance is adjusting, adjusting, adjusting. That's balance. So I also came then, how do I maintain this balance or have it in my life? And I knew that before I had the hiatus, I had set boundaries, but I let others push them. So I had to take responsibility that if I'm going to set a boundary, I will hold to it. Mm -hmm. I can't blame the other person because people are, that's human nature. Come on, you can do one more event. Come on, I know you're tired, but can you do another one, right? So that was my decision. So I was very clear because within two weeks, and here's how, if you're a big law of attraction believer like I am, the moment I made the decision that I had to come out of retirement, within two weeks, the company I'd done most of my contracting with, they were phoning me asking if I'd come out of retirement because they needed me. Oh. And it was like, just all of a sudden the phone's ringing and, and it was like, I was surprised to hear from him, but I wasn't because <laughs> I'm an amazing manifester myself. And so I said to him, when we had the discussions, I said, yes, but I will not go as hard as I did before. So I want to be clear up front. I said, no matter where in the world you use me, I will do 20 trainings a year. That's it. So that even with all the travel, I can have six months a year at home with my family to do whatever I want to do. And from 2012, to 2020 when the world changed, in those eight years, I averaged 19, 20, or 21 trainings a year for all those eight years. I had six months a year, even though I was flying 200,000 miles a year around the world, I still had six months a year home time to do whatever I want. And my question to your audience, how many of you'd love to be able to take six months a year off and do whatever you want while yep. living your passion, right? So um, I've put those boundaries in my place and I live by them. Even when I get on a project in here, as we had to transform to virtual, I got going hard, hard, hard. And my wife went, uh, dear, you're burning out. So here's what we're going to do. Cause I live by my calendar and in my new book and writing that I'm writing right now, I um, teach people how to become an authority, but I teach them how to be the person who can handle being the authority and not get burnt out. So she made one little adjustment to our calendar that we live by her. One um, adjustment was she said 12 to one lunch. And at lunch, we put our phones down, we play cards, we eat, we connect. No other distraction. From 6.30 to 8, dinner. We put our phones down, we have dinner, we watch some TV, we enjoy interacting with each other. That was the one adjustment she put in that then changed the whole energy for me. Because we work as a team that way of how do we support each other. I like that. And it kind of goes back to what we talked about with commitment. You made that commitment to yourself that you were going to keep that schedule and you are being committed and doing that. And it's yep. showing a lot in those years that you were doing it, that if you set it for yourself, you're able to enjoy both your passion and your personal. 
Yeah, because I, summertime, my wife and I are out in the middle of the woods on crown land with family, with our quads and side-by-sides and just enjoying nature with all of our animals that we bring with us camping <laughs> because we love family. We love having time. And so, yeah, my time off is very important. And I'm the only one who can decide to allow it or not. Yep. So what does the future look like for you? What are you hoping to accomplish in the next few years, personally and professionally? Hmm. Well, you know, um, now that we've built the training center uh, professionally, I cannot wait to have mentoring students because I have mentoring and coaching students all over the world, but to have them now start coming to my facility Mm -hmm. where I can help them get their message out. And I love that. Um, I'm in a major creation mode with a a partner, a couple partners that I have where we're creating content for others to sell and just loving the creation process. Uh, You know, and like this summer, uh, we were hired on and paid a lot of money a very high um, five-figure um, payment to create a five-day camp for uh, um, someone who has a training company. And we're going to deliver it in, in August. So me and my partner, we've been creating and having fun. And last weekend, we actually took the data and put it into a three-day training virtually to test it. And we had 30 students from nine countries on for the three days. We're going to do it as a one-off training. Mm-hmm. But at the end, everybody's like, no, 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 no. The world needs this. you got to teach this again. So now we're going to teach it four times a year because of the feedback that we got. And when we had the meeting with the um, partner we're, that we're developing for yesterday, and we were showing them the testimonials and that, they're like, can we have the camp earlier than August? And we're like, no, we need till August. To get <laughs> in place. Um, because we're going to have about 250 people at this live five-day camp. So mixing virtual and live, because you're so right, Alex. Nothing gives me greater joy than being able to walk down into my audience and have a conversation and high five them, hug people. Yeah, you, Zoom just can't replace that. No matter how great I can do on Zoom, personal trainings, but I, I won't even do 20 anymore a year. See, as we come out of this and we can travel again, I'll maybe do four, maybe five live events a year where someone pays me to fly somewhere to do a training because the rest of the time I'm going to be here. My students will come to me because yep. that's the way I've created it. So that's on the um, professional life. But that's also the personal life as well, because now with this beautiful space, um, I, I come from very large families. My dad, second oldest of 10. My wow. mom was one of eight. And so on my mom's side, every two years they have family reunions. Well, because of COVID, we haven't had one for three years. But this summer, I'm going to have my, you know, four acres, I'm going to have about 20, 25 RVs on the back, in the backyard. We're going to have the fire pit going. We're going to have horseshoes being played. We're going to use my training facility where we have meals if the weather's not good. You know, this is where, because we have the place to really put on a great family reunion because we're all about family and friends. And so we love creating great things here at our, our home that we're blessed to have. I like that. I can already picture all those RVs out there. Just the fun that you guys are going to be having. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, we'll be setting off fireworks. Uh, we'll have no competition at all with the <laughs> horseshoes. You know, we bring out big giant Jenga games and and play those. We just we we just when the families get together, we have a blast. The final question I'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals, and rise to the challenge? Yeah, you know, the biggest obstacle I've seen for people, Alex, is they get overwhelmed. And overwhelm from my experience from what I've witnessed around the world is either you're a thousand steps ahead of yourself trying to figure everything out or you're so far in the past hanging on to past failures, past hurts, past, you know, whatever. 
is let that crap go. And yeah. when you're feeling overwhelmed, take a nice deep breath, come back to present and ask yourself a question. What is one step I can take right now to go in the direction I want to do? And the big, the, the kind of the um, big clue of that is, especially in the beginning, when you're creating this habit of taking one step, you've heard the saying success comes one step at a time. That is so true. But in the beginning to create the habit, I will, I, I coach people make the steps so easy, so ridiculously easy that no matter what happens in your day in your life, you will take that step. And that your mind's going, that's too easy. Because your mind's going to, no matter what you decide, your mind's going to try to beat you up over it. So in the beginning, you really make it so easy that you can take the step. Because then in my book, step number four of the six steps is you celebrate your success. And I'm not saying yeah, you have to do this huge, wow, I'm going to Disneyland. I did this little step. It could be something as simple as great job or a fist bump, pump. Yes. Something that anchors in that success and then take another step. Take a deep breath, take another step. If they do that, they will be absolutely amazed and blown away by how they can get through even what they consider maybe really tough times. That's how they're going to rise above. Well, Robert, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Oh, thank you, Alex. And, you know, I would love because you were so gracious to have me on your podcast. And I believe one of our greatest um, uh, commodities that we have is our time. And the fact that you took your valuable time to invite me and interview me and your audience took their valuable time to listen as a gift from you and I, I would love to, for them to get my international bestselling book, Success Left a Clue, the digital download as a gift from us for absolutely free. And they just have to go to robertreopel.com to get that. And then I'm in my giving phase right now because I've been so blessed in my life that also, if they go and download the book, remember, don't download it. You have to read it and do the but When they do that, they'll also be able to book in a 20-minute complimentary one-on-one strategy session with me, personally, with me. And in that 20 minutes, I will, because they'll have to fill out a questionnaire, I will give them strategies to take their life to the next level, no matter what it is in life, business, whatever it is, I'll be there. I don't sell them anything. It's just 20 minutes of sheer, how can I help you? have an even greater life. And I'd love to give that as a gift as well. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow, subscribe to all major audio platforms and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the following episode in video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.